Hello from beautiful Austin, and welcome to episode 35 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It might be beautiful, but it's hot. Hot, please. It's like in the high 80s. It feels great. It's going to be 97 on Thursday. This is this is positively uh, cool weather, Austin style. <laughs> um, Austin has a weird definition of cool. I tell you what, it gets it gets pretty nice during the winter. So it's let's see, Bobby. It's Tuesday, September 12th, right around 2:22 Central Daylight Time. That's right. Uh, what's going on? Well, I got to tell you, um, my voice is a little shot. So if listeners think I sound a little funny, it's because I still have not entirely recovered from going to the Guns N' Roses concert last Friday night in San Antonio. <laughs> I didn't tell Steve if I was going to mention that. <laughs> um, did, did, were you welcomed to the jungle? I was welcomed to the jungle. I, I will, I'll give you a And little. hey, that, that sweet child of yours turned, had a birthday. <laughs> I did have a sweet child having a birthday this weekend. That was awesome too, but I didn't yell and scream nearly as much <laughs> at my kid's eight-year-old party as I did on Friday night at the Gun, Alamo Dome. Guns and roses. I Gun, mean... They're still going. Man. Let's, I'll give a little mini review when we get to the uh, okay, trivia okay. at the end. So, so there actually is stuff besides Guns and Roses concerts happening <laughs> in the world. Um, we thought actually we would lead with a news item that's really a, a good excuse for folks to tune in to our second plan podcast of the week. So yesterday, uh, the government sent a letter um, to Congress, to the relevant leaders of Congress, with regard to reauthorization of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. We've alluded to this before on the podcast. This is one of the key uh, foreign surveillance authorities that Congress gave the executive branch in 2008, and it's set to expire at the end of this year. Um, Two things to say, Bobby. One, the letter asks for a clean and permanent reauthorization. So not only to reenact it with no changes, but to actually uh, eliminate the sunset so it now goes into perpetuity. Um, Two, we have exactly the right person coming to town on Thursday to ask questions about this uh, rather straightforward seeming but perhaps controversial proposal. That's right. On Thursday morning, we will be sitting down for episode 35, no, 36, Six, 36. of the podcast uh, with NSA General Counsel Glenn Gerstel, who we're happy to be uh, hosting here at UT to give a talk to our students and faculty. Uh, and and <laughs> against his better judgment, no doubt, he agreed <laughs> to sit down with us beforehand to be a guest of the podcast, Uh-oh. joining the rare company, uh, he and Matt Tate, so far being the only people uh, to guest That's on I, I, I think that I think that set speaks well of us that those are our first two guests to have two folks who are so learned with such different perspectives on the same subject matter speaks uh, speaks well of us I'm not sure what it says about the two of them but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll let them decide anyway so so all that's just to say that you know we're getting a double dose of the National Security Law podcast this week. Wow. Fantastic. And let me put in a plug real quick uh, for our 702 aficionados. Uh, Stuart Baker's uh, Steptoe Cyber Law podcast uh, had an episode this week that has some really great back and forth debating 702 in its upstream capacity. And there will be more in the series on Steptoe's podcast. So if you're a 702 aficionado, you know, definitely tune in for our episode 35. But go go make sure you're listening to Steptoe Cyber. 36. Yeah. Well, you're obviously listening to 35. <laughs> you've already you've already you've already accomplished something. There's a time right. more. Um so our two are uh, time Hello, I'm from the future. <laughs> yeah, this 
<laughs> That'll be a future episode. I brought the future, and I'm here to help you. That, that will, or it will be a past episode. <laughs> it depends on your perspective. <laughs> All right. So our two actual topics for this week turn into slightly more serious matters. We had last week the uh, the Office of the Solicitor General, right, the lawyer that represents the government before the Supreme Court, filed two very important uh, response briefs in the two major Guantanamo military commission search petitions, the Al-Balul case and the Sherry case. We thought we'd spend a few minutes actually diving into those filings and talking a bit about the stakes of these petitions since the Supreme Court is now set to act on them pretty soon. Perhaps even use that as an excuse to talk about some other pending cert petitions that some you know crazy wackadoodle national security law professor has filed, raising actually a related but distinct question about the judges in the military commission system. Um, Bob, Bobby is looking at me like, you know, who is this professor wackadoodle sitting across from me? <laughs> Why well, you look familiar? Um, and then we're going to talk about North Korea because obviously there's yet more news about North Korea. There's the action in the UN. Um, there's President Trump's uh, tweet storms about North Korea before and after. Bobby, you have some interesting sort of perspective to add to folks about what's what's changed, what's still in, in the offing, what what should folks be looking for? That sounds good. So we'll we'll have a, a UN Security Council deep dive later in the episode. Um, before we put everyone to sleep with that, let's let's focus on the military stuff. Indeed, the, the military is at the Supreme Court. Steve, why don't which one should we start with? Uh, let's do Balul because I think Balul is actually in some ways the sort of bigger substantive question. Yeah, it's it's got a little more uh, red meat in it, if you will. <laughs> so um, you want to kind of start by, and we've talked about some of this before, but let's assume that the listeners aren't familiar with which case it is. Quick primer on which of the defendants we're talking about, and then what are the questions presented? So Balul is a convicted al-Qaeda propagandist. Um, Judge Henderson likes to refer to him as the Joseph Goebbels of al-Qaeda. I'm not really sure that works in either direction. Um, But uh, Balul was convicted in a military commission on three charges, uh, material support to terrorism, solicitation, and conspiracy. Um, Two of those charges were subsequently reversed by the D.C. Circuit, even under plain error review. And that was material support and and solicitation. solicitation. Exactly. So his conviction is left to hang on the conspiracy charge. That's right. And for various complicated reasons, uh, the question for the Supreme Court is both backward looking, whether it violates the ex post facto clause to uh, try someone for conspiracy when the conduct giving rise to to the charge and the conviction predated Congress's enumeration of conspiracy as an offense tribal by military commission. Which was, what, 2006, 2000, the, the October original? 2006. Yeah. And just to expand on that point briefly, uh, there's, as I understand it, two different ex post facto arguments. First, is there an ex post facto concept, I guess, read into the Military Commissions Act as a statutory matter? Right. And then even if there isn't, is the constitutional you know, Article One, Section 9 constraint yep. on ex post facto law applicable there? And just to remind folks, in case somehow you lost this somewhere along the way, in one of its like 26 decisions in Al-Balul's case, uh, the en banc D.C. Circuit held that plain error applied to that question. Um, that on the merits, there was no ex post facto rule in the Military Commissions Act, but that there was in the Constitution, and that it was not plain error um, for Balul to be convicted for conspiracy because there was just enough support in the historical record for trying conspiracy as international war crime. So on that set of issues, there's both the substantive underlying question and then this sort of the classic appellate overlay of what's the deference, the deference posture. And the, right, the standard of review. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, that's the, I, I refer to that as the backward-looking question. Then there's okay. the forward-looking question, which is, ex post facto aside, um, can military commissions try non-international war crimes, what the petitioner calls domestic offenses like inchoate conspiracy, um, without violating Article 3, right? That does not depend upon the timing of the conduct vis-a-vis the charge. It depends upon the underlying constitutional authority. 
that may sound to listeners like the same question. Um, the difference is that there's a stronger argument for de novo review, right? That is to say for um, not applying plain error to the Article Three question because it is a classical structural jurisdictional question than the ex post facto issue. So that's why they're both up, right? They're both here on sort of like, a, so what do you do? Man, this is uh, this is complicated. So, and then there's also we've got an equal protection clause challenge, or not clause, I should say. There's an equal protection concept as an aspect of Fifth Amendment due process argument built in there. What do you mean there. there's no equal protection clause that applies to the federal government? In the Fifth Amendment, but Bowling v. Sharp, as my students would tell you. Um, so that argument is based on the alien, you know, it's applicable. This, this system is applicable to non-citizens, not Only. citizens. Right. And uh, were there any other arguments mixed in, or is it those three buckets? So there's a lingering First Amendment question, but I, I, I'd be very surprised if, you know, that's going to sort of make its way up. Um, so so the, here's the key. In the first big en banc decision, what's often referred to as Albalua 1, um, we had the plain error ruling on the ex post facto issues. Then we had Albalua 3, which is the decision currently under review, a separate en banc ruling about the Article 3 question. Um, nine D.C. Circuit judges participated in Albalua 3. Seven of them would have reached the Article 3 question de novo, which is to say up or down, right? Can a military commission try a domestic offense like conspiracy, yes or no? No baggage. Um, mm-hmm. And those seven divided four to three um, with four judges saying um, under de novo review, it's constitutional for a military commission to try domestic offenses. Three judges saying, no, it's not. Um, if that were all that happened, this would be a clearly cert-worthy, critical, important case about the military commissions. The problem is, is that there were two narrower concurrences in Albalul 3, both of which could at least superficially um, suggest to the justices that there are what, what are called vehicle problems, that yes. there are reasons why this isn't the right case to resolve the big constitutional question. And, uh, of course, all, all these considerations of whether as a vehicle problem matter the court should take cert in this case, it has to be looked at against the backdrop of the fact that this is 2017 we're talking about. <laughs> it's been a few years. It's been a few years, folks. And, and, and Judge Kavanaugh makes that point. I mean, so in, in his concurring opinion in Albalul 3, um, Judge Kavanaugh goes out of his way to say it is high time we settled this question. And it's important just to stress for listeners why this is such a big deal. If you count the three ongoing trials in the military commissions, there have been 11 separate military commission proceedings at Guantanamo so far. Um, nine of them, nine of the 11, have included at least some charges that were not clearly established international war crimes. So this is not like some marginal question in the military commissions. This has been the central legal question about the commissions, not just since the Military Commissions Act was enacted in 2006, but since the commissions were first stood up in 2002. And I would submit that this will continue to be a big issue insofar as military commissions are meant to be applicable as a tool of counterterrorism apart from conventional combat operations. And the reason I say that is that the charges we're talking about are the inchoate charges, mm-hmm. the charges that enable you to take action based on membership or support or, or involvement with others in a terrorist organization. Or attempts or planning or right. Right. But where you can't farther up the food chain. Where you can't get someone in actually I think attempt is, is not as much of an obstacle. Yeah, but, you're right. but when you can the, the cases that are easier, the ones where you can link someone to a particular act that involves killing civilians or killing prisoners or something like that. Or attacking, you know, right. protected targets or perfidy or whatever. Right. And the fact of the matter is that there's, you know, 
more than a decade of experience with this stuff shows that a lot of times what you've actually got is somebody who you know is an Al-Qaeda member, et cetera. You can prove that, but you can't actually link them to a specific attack they personally engaged in. And so in. the best you can do is charge them with some variation of material support, right. conspiracy, and solicitation. And the civilian criminal court system is perfectly amenable Totes. to that. The question, the million-dollar question. Billion-dollar, you might say. <laughs> if you can't see it, I'm doing the Dr. Evil thing with the, the One pinky. Million One million dollars. dollars. Uh, the, the question that really matters for the uh, charging capacity of the commission system as a tool of counterterrorism is, so can they do conspiracy or not? Right. And do you, have a, do you have a view on this, Bobby Chesney? Do I have a view? Well, let's talk through through the lens of the argument in this case. So it's it's very interesting. Um, one of the things that the acting Solicitor General uh, Wall's brief says is, look, um, it's let's at least he says let's at least recognize that as a matter of American domestic law, military commissions going in back into the 19th century and also including World War II have charged conspiracy, right? And he cites Kieran and he cites the Lincoln. Uh, case as well. So, what's the? Do you do you agree with him that at least as a matter of our domestic practice, we've been charging conspiracy? No. Okay. So, why? What? How do you distinguish those? So, Marty Lederman, our mutual friend, right, has a um, how should I say Marty length um, article, right? Which is to say, it's really thorough and good. <laughs> uh, just out in the Georgetown Law Journal, right? That actually is directly responsive to this whole line of argument. And right, basically, so clerks should read this. I think that was the idea. Um, <laughs> And, and litigants should cite it. Um, and, and what Marty basically says is, um, one of two things is true about all these charges, right? Either it was charged as pure conspiracy and there was never a conviction on it, in which case the fact that it was charged is not exactly indicative of anything, okay. or it was charged as conspiracy in a context where it wasn't actually an inchoate crime, but rather conspiracy to commit a completed offense. Right, so you, so you could have just charged the completed offense. A conspiracy is sort of tacked on as almost like an aggregating factor. Or a now, theory of liability. An aggravating factor, although aggregating factor is kind of relevant for there. A theory of liability. Now, Wall's brief, I think, actually says something about this and says in in pointing to the KSM case and maybe pointing to Balul as well, if I'm not mistaken, saying, look, you know, they completed the act at issue here. So if that's a distinction. So if, that's so that's just, I'm, I, I'm sorry, yeah, interrupting. No, if, if, if that's a distinction, we're winking at you, Ben. Uh, if that's a distinction, then it's one that's not a problem for Balul, or is it? So I think it is. This is Judge Wilkins's con- Judge Wilkins' concurrence in Al-Balul 3, right, which is you can sort of, if you just close, you know, if you squint a little bit and turn the piece of paper, you can somehow construe Al-Balul's conviction as, in fact, a conviction for the 9-11 attacks, in which conspiracy is just a theory of liability. Okay. Um, there are a lot of problems with this, right? The first of which is it's not how the offense was charged. Um, it's not clear the Military Commissions Act would allow it to be charged that way. Um, and there's no evidence that it's actually what the jury found. Is this analogous to the, so in international law, we have the idea of joint criminal enterprise. Mm-hmm. And the way I've always understood this without having studied it closely is that the way you explain that that's not actually like American conspiracy law is it's really not standalone liability for the agreement itself. It's a theory of liability that then runs to a completed act. That's right. So JCE in, in ICL is exactly that, right? It's a theory of liability. <laughs> nice for acronymization there. Thank you. Um, so listen, this argument has been well dealt with. So the problem is even if an appellate court had the power to reconstrue a, a conviction on one charge as a conviction on another. And there's actually lots of Supreme Court case law going back saying you can't do that. 
Um, the relevant predicates to doing that aren't present here because of the way the case was charged and presented to the members. Well, let me press you. Okay, so you're saying that we can distinguish both the Lincoln uh, assassins or the Lincoln assassination conspiracy and the Kieran World War II Nazi saboteur case conspiracy charges on the grounds that there the conspiracy was linked to a completed act. Now, that's clearly true for uh, the Lincoln assassination. Um is the idea with Kieran and the Nazi saboteurs, yep. these were the, the ones who washed up on the shores in Long Island and in Florida, but th- this group was yep. the Long Island group. Yep. Um, was the completed act they conspired to commit the act of simply being behind enemy lines? Because they didn't actually carry out any attacks. No, but so central to the, so the, the problem with the conspiracy charge in Kieran is that there wasn't actually a conviction on it, right? Like the, the ah. right, the, it was charged, but the actual conviction that the Supreme Court upheld were for two separate violations of the 1916 Articles of War that the court concluded were in fact international war crimes. And which, that, what were those crimes? Oh gosh. Um, uh. One of them was surreptitiously crossing the lines in time of war. And I think one was sabotage, right? Okay. Um, and, but but that's to me that I know, but they didn't actually succeed. But it's not and, what the court said, right? Yeah. And so so here's the problem: in Kieran, the statute itself required that the offenses be war crimes, right? We're now this is not so. Balul raises the question Kieran did not answer, yeah. which is. In Kieran, the statute required to be a war crime. That's why the court has to go out of its way to find those two offenses as war crimes, itself a controversial holding, right? Now the question, there's no, there's, the government has no longer argued, although it once did, that these offenses are war crimes, right? The argument is that Congress has the power to charge domestic offenses. Right. Um, Kieran just didn't settle that question one way or the other. Interesting. And, and that's why, to me, the imperative is, you know, I have my own view of the merits. I've written a lot about it. But at the very least, it ought to be the Supreme Court that now steps back in and says, hey, we didn't settle this 75 years ago in Kieran, but we're settling it today. Well, and it certainly would be unsatisfying if the resolution here becomes one of, well, you know, cite, cite this prior precedent. It's kind of halfway on point and, and not engage in any direct analysis. Should the jurisdiction of a military commission extend to this scenario? What's the sh- what, are the, what are the stakes in arguing it one way or the other apart from precedent? So I think, I think there are two different sets of stakes. Um, one is to the, for the commissions themselves, and one is for sort of broader understandings of Article Three. Okay. With regard to the commissions themselves, um, the stakes are their utility going forward, right? That is to say, like, if the commissions cannot try domestic offenses, then what we're looking at is we're looking at the 9-11 trial, we're looking at maybe the Nishiri trial. We're going to talk about that in a minute, right? Um, and maybe nothing else. Because well, they could. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. They could keep 9-11 yeah. as a conspiracy charge based on the clear, the clear connection to a completed offense. Right. 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 That's right. I'm saying the 9-11 yeah. trial would still be there. Oh, right? I misunderstood yeah, you. Yeah, no, the 9-11 trial would still be there, right? Because even whatever happens to the conspiracy charge in the 9-11 case, there are direct war crimes charged in the indictment. Got it. Right. right? Um, Nishiri, depending upon the other questions in Nishiri— but as you said about five minutes ago, Bobby, right, there are structural reasons why it's going to be very hard to link either current or future detainees to international war crimes in this context. Right. And so if the court takes non-international offenses off the table, right, the military commissions become just about like a legacy project. So what's interesting is that will that'll exert a little bit of gravitational pull perhaps on, on different justices in different directions. Uh, what about the stakes for Article Three more generally? So this is something where, where th- this is like my one-man mission, right? <laughs> I've been trying for years to convince folks that the Guantanamo cases have implications beyond Guantanamo. Um, and with regard to Article Three, you know, there's a whole sort of body of very messy Fed courts jurisprudence about when Congress is allowed to create non-Article Three federal courts. Um, the three classic exemplars being military courts, 
uh, territorial courts, like the District Court of Guam, mm -hmm. and courts to handle so-called public rights disputes, like the Bankruptcy Court, Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, Tax Court, et cetera. Um, a lot of those precedents are based on the, are, you know, look to military courts as the strongest, the most well-grounded, well-founded example, because it was clear at the founding that there would be military courts, right? General yeah. Washington in his army had courts martial. Major Andre. Exactly. Um, the problem is that, you know, there's not a lot of really good founding era material on the limits of military jurisdiction. And so my real concern, and I wrote a whole article in the Georgetown Law Journal a couple years ago about this, um, crazily titled Military Courts in Article 3, um, <laughs> is that once you allow for, wholly apart from the merits of, of trying Ballou on the military commission, once you start sort of blurring the sort of bright lines that have historically constrained departures from Article 3, that has implications not just within the military justice system, but within what other offenses can be tried in non-Article 3 courts, what other sort of um, non-Article 3 agencies or, or public rights disputes can be resolved without Article 3 judges. And listen, you know, this is not to demean non-Article Three judges who are doing the best not. they can. Yeah, sure. But Article Three and its independence protections exist for a reason. Well, and that is where the judicial power is vested. Crazy. So, so to me, right, Balul is a big case not just because I get very nervous about military courts trying ordinary domestic offenses, and I don't know where that stops, mm -hmm. um, but also because even if that's only going to be applied to folks over there, right, as I gesticulate toward not the U.S. Um, <laughs> It has implications for other bodies of jurisprudence as well, because you know when the when the Supreme Court in 1973 upheld the power of the D.C. Superior Court to try ordinary crimes, Justice White's whole opinion is about how we let courts martial do it. Right. So, so, so it clearly can be done, and then you just need to identify your limiting principle. And my concern is that international law is actually a really useful, powerful analytically defensible limiting principle in the context of military commissions, once you go past that limiting principle, I don't know what the next one is. Like, what's the limiting principle that says you can try Balul for conspiracy, but not me for speeding? Well, what about when there's a military tribunal in the nature of a provost court mm -hmm. that's it's a court of necessity in an occupied territory where the, the, the existing courts can't yeah. function, whether it's overseas or Civil War type scenarios like in New Orleans, occupied New Orleans. Um, they're not charging, they might charge law of war offenses, but they're going to enforce regular civilian totally. criminal laws. It's like D.C. Superior Court. Why isn't the same true for the military commission? So I think I, I say I spend more time on this in my article, right? But the short version is occupation courts like martial law courts, right, are predicated on the notion that there is no functioning civil authority. Mm -hmm. And so the assertion of military jurisdiction over domestic offenses in those cases is not at the expense of civilian Got courts. It. So it's like it, it it's of necessity. That makes sense. And then, of course, that finds support in Ex parte Milligan. Well, and indeed, it also finds support in the international law of belligerent occupation. Um, right. So, so the argument that I try to make in my Georgetown article is that international law recognizes circumstances in which military adjudication is appropriate. Right. Domestic offenses, when the civilian courts are open and they're pro and they're and not obstructed, is not one of them. I'll submit to you that advancing the international law wouldn't like this line of argument won't be helpful uh, for these litigants at this stage in the Supreme Court, at least uh, not likely. I understand, but I do think that as a limiting principle, it actually has a lot more legs than people might think at first blush. Yeah, but I think it's interesting actually to tease that out and think, you know, if you're saying that international law tells America they, we can't do this, yeah. 
that's not going to work. But if you say, no, international law and the scope of the uh, international criminal law rooted in violations of the law of armed conflict is an available, rational, and administrable limiting principle, um, that's actually fairly useful. Right. And this is a fight I've had with other folks before. I mean, so Article 1, Section 8, Clause 10 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to define and punish offenses against the laws of nations, mm -hmm. right? Um, two ways to read that provision. One, Congress can take anything it wants, call it an offense against the law of nations, yes. and make it and and prohibit it under federal law. Jaywalking is a LOAC violation. Ja uh, jaywalking or, you know, failure to maintain minimum health insurance coverage, right? <laughs> right. Which would be an easy way to uphold the ACA. Um, <laughs> That's an excellent uh, counterexample. Right. Um, or... Congress is actually at least somehow constrained in its power to define and punish offenses. It's got to be within some bounds of reasonable interpretation. Just like, you know, a reasonable interpretation of what is interstate commerce or a reasonable mm -hmm. interpretation of what is prohibited by Section 1 of the 14th Amendment when it legislates pursuant to Section mm -hmm. 5 of the 14th Amendment. But, but critically here, to your point earlier, the, the court is, I mean, the Congress and, and more to the point, the Solicitor General now, they're not arguing that this is all fine as a define and punish matter. They, they seem to be conceding that we're, we're past what could be justified simply by saying, look, this is a law of war violation. They've let that ship sail, and now they're saying that's not actually necessary. The power of Congress to define the charges that can be brought is broader than the law of war, which, and which, indeed broader in international law. And that may be true, at least if it's being prosecuted in an Article III court, right? Like I actually, Surely so. I actually think yeah. Congress is entitled to more latitude when it's a civilian court prosecuting the offense. Well, there, there aren't we really talking about, well, what's the Article I, Section 8 Correct. justification? Whereas here, there's a standalone Article Three constraint. Yeah. So this is the fight on the merits. My concern about the government's brief, turning back to that for a second, is that the government's brief is basically an effort to convince the court that this case doesn't actually properly present the merits. Well, I don't blame them for trying that, but I agree. I, you know I agree with you that it, we are, I'm, and I agree with Judge Kavanaugh, it's time to get definitive yeah. answers for this. And listen, if Brett Kavanaugh and I, if Brett Kavanaugh and I are on the same page, that should tell people something. <laughs> I, do, I have to agree with that. I have to agree with that. All right, so we have we exhausted for now? Um, well, so, so, so just really quickly. So, oh, wait, that's only, yeah. So are they going to grant? Oh, are they going to grant? Yeah. Um, Hmm. All right. Well, I guess we're, we're gambling men, so I'm going to say yes. Yeah. I'm. I. I. I hate to say it, but I think. I think they'll duck. I, I, they shouldn't duck. I wrote an amicus brief explaining why they shouldn't duck. I don't think either of the concurring opinions are actually, you know, defensible reasons to not hear this case. Um, but I think they'll duck. And I think that, you know, I don't think that in in the way that Hamdan back in 2006 and Boumediene presented real separation of powers um, attacks on the Article Three courts. Right. This is a sort of much subtler one. That's right. It's it's not as obvious a case, but my chips down on the table now. Well, they're, they're going to grant. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to bet against you. All right. Um, and hope that Usually I'm wrong. a smart move. No, no. But listen, I mean, I mean, this is the right case, and this is the right time. I just I just don't have faith that they're going to see it that way. Well, what about the other one? What right. about Nishiri? So Nishiri. So Nishiri, in some ways, is a much smaller case, and in some ways, it's actually a much more sort of. Um, cert-worthy case because of the weird, wonky way it's gotten to the Supreme Court. So start really at the beginning. The The substantive question behind Nashiri, Nashiri has not yet been convicted. This is a pretrial case, which is where all this Michigas comes from. Um, the substantive question is whether the military commissions authorizes and the Constitution permits a military commission to try a, um, a war crime committed outside the context of an actual armed conflict, right? In other words, at the time that, that Nishiri was involved in the bombing of the USS Cole in October of 2000, were we not in fact at war with Al-Qaeda such that the laws of war applied and a military commission was authorized? The Military Commissions Act itself 
limits its jurisdiction to hostilities, which it further defines as a conflict subject to the laws of war. Mm-hmm. So there's actually, unlike in Balul, here there's a statutory argument that there's no jurisdiction. Right. Um, the Nishiri has, because this is a challenge to the jurisdiction of a military court, Nishiri has tried to raise this before his trial. Um, he brought a habeas petition in the D.C. District Court, and he brought a mandamus petition in the D.C. Circuit. Um, the habeas petition was rejected on the ground that uh, oh, a divided panel of the D.C. Circuit rejected Nishiri's habeas petition on the ground that something called councilman abstention militates in favor of deferring these kinds of challenges until a post-conviction appeal. Um, the court also denied his mandamus petition for reasons we've discussed before about how high its bar for mandamus relief is. Nishiri then petitions for certiorari on both, on both the um, abstention holding, is it really appropriate to abstain from deciding a subject matter jurisdiction challenge to a military commission? And is the D.C. Circuit's mandamus standard too high, on which point Nishiri says there's actually a circuit split? So on the councilman abstention point, I'm a little confused because I thought there was a general military uh, proceeding exception to the general councilman rule. So um, it's not quite that general. Um, so the exception to councilman that the Supreme Court relied upon in Hamdan. Hamdan was a pretrial right. habeas petition. Right. I didn't think this was actually that controversial. So the exception that the court relied upon in Hamdan is um, I had always understood it per footnote 8 of Justice Harlan the Younger's opinion in a 1968 case called Noid versus Bond to run to all challenges to the jurisdiction of a military court. That's why I thought this was a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. The DC Circuit, a divided panel, Judge Tittle dissented, um, held that in fact, that exception is limited to status challenges to military jurisdiction. Personal jurisdiction. Personal ju- So I don't think it's quite right. It's, it feels like personal jurisdiction. Right. It's not formally such, but that's a good way to kind of gesture towards it. Right. I actually, it, is a, it really is a species of subject matter jurisdiction. But right, um, is this the kind of person who can be tried by a military yes. court as opposed to is this the kind of offense that can be tried by a military court? So what is the purported basis in logic for drawing that distinction? That is, we will allow basically what amounts to interlocutory appeal, pretrial appeal, of, or litigation of the issue, if it's about the whether you're within the personal scope of people tribal by commission, but not if it's a question of whether these charges are tribal. So the best the D.C. Circuit offers on that point is that m- almost all of the cases where the court has, in fact, heard pretrial challenges have been status challenges. And that's just true. I mean, that's true. Um, but that doesn't really tell me anything unless there's a, an opinion that rejects one before this, no. rejects one on the ground that, oh, no, no, you can't challenge preliminarily the, the charges involved. And I would have thought the justification in both cases uh, would be the same, which is there's an immense amount of waste involved. Quite. I mean, so, so let's talk about that in Nishiri for, 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 for a moment, right? So the, the projection in Nishiri, unlike the 9-11 trial, which we talked about last week, might be again, as early as January 2019, the projection in Nishiri is that the trial might not end, right? The appeal might not return to the D.C. Circuit until 2024. This is a capital case. Right, a ton of money is going to be expended, a ton of resources consumed. Wouldn't we be better off finding out now if the whole thing's going to be thrown out in seven years for an obvious jurisdictional defect? Very obviously, yes. And and if I were involved with uh, you know the survivor groups uh, and the and the family members of the USS Cole bombing, I'd want to know this person's being prosecuted in a place where we will definitely get to an outcome. Me too. I mean, I, so so unlike Balul, where I understand why the government's like resisting, right, Supreme Court review. I just don't understand in Nishiri why it's like, you know, the government has, in my mind, a stronger argument on the merits 
in Nishiri than it does in Belul. And yet it's digging its heels and then trying to sort of defer adjudication for as long as possible. I mean, do you think it's as simple as, look, there, there is sort of a litigation mentality of, you know, you f- fight in, to defend every trench, defend every foot, give up nothing, uh, which I always think is a little pennywise pound foolish as an overall disposition if you don't have exceptions. It's also, yeah, but there's also, I mean, there's also a difference between the, the position you take at the cert stage and the position you take on the merits, right? Like, it's easy to sort of say, hey, Supreme Court, like, there's no circuit split. Like, this new, sure. right, the, the new sort of status but not subject matter, right, yeah. um, distinction. No court disagrees with that, right? <laughs> When's this going to come up again? Well, you know? right. um, so, so I wrote an amicus brief on behalf of the National Institute of Military Justice that tries to sort of walk through in very significant detail why the status versus um, subject matter distinction doesn't actually work. Right. Um, part of it's because they're both species of subject matter jurisdiction. Right. They're both asking whether this is the right kind of case for the military to try. Right. Part of it's because um, a lot of what the lower courts relied upon was that Congress and the Military Commissions Act blessed all of this. It actually doesn't really matter for purposes of councilman abstention because you know if it's a constitutional challenge, the fact that Congress blessed it doesn't change the fact that it's a constitutional challenge. And there's one really interesting fact about councilman itself that I think folks don't realize: in councilman itself. Right? The court abstains from hearing the pretrial habeas petition only after concluding that the offense in question was, in fact, service-connected. Hmm. Right? At the time councilman was decided, that was a jurisdictional hook. Right, You couldn't court-martial a service member for a non-service-connected offense. So they made sure that was satisfied before they then backed off. So they didn't entirely abstain. Right. And so, th- so, so part of what's going on here is I think we're overreading councilmen. Um, and I think actually, as long as you have a, cha- a challenge to the, you know, subject matter jurisdiction in the military court that is plausible, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't have to be, cult- it doesn't have to be meritorious. Yeah. Um, you should be allowed to litigate that in advance. I would think one of the policy uh, considerations that often favors uh, abstention doctrines in general is to try to ward off uh, premature involvement, floods of premature involvement by the appellate courts. Uh, here, it seems like the particular, if it has to be viewed as an extension, then the particular extension at issue is not one that's going to come up very often. No. And there's not really much flood threat, if you will. And in one sense, this is where Belul and Nishiri are related, right? I mean, there are different cases about different issues at different postures. But if the court wants to settle the Article Three question in Belul and is not convinced that Belul is an appropriate vehicle, how they answer the abstention question in Nishiri could have a lot to say about how soon they can get back to the Article Three point. Yeah, well, I think a lot rides on these two cases. If they if they say no in both these cases, it's a sign that the justices are comfortable with however long this interminable process plays out, which I think it, it in many ways is, is very disconcerting because it's been so many years. Not just how long, right, but also with the notion that the military commissions and their appellate review tribunals are competent to resolve the jurisdictional issues in a way that don't require, you know, continuing supervision. And that's a real concern to me because, as we talked about before, I have real sort of qualms about the quality, especially of the sort of jurisdictional analysis coming out of these courts. I'm, I'm not so sure it, it signifies sort of trust in the CMCR and in the trial judges so much as it signifies uh, a willingness to just leave it in the hands of yeah. the D.C. Circuit, Maybe. which is kind of what the approach they took with habeas post-Bumedian. I think that's right to a point. But listen, I mean, you know, unlike habeas post-Bumedian, where the D.C. Circuit eventually was speaking with just about one voice. Oh, yeah. And, right? you know, and, and rapidly. I mean, that whole, that whole phase of litigation seemed interminable at the time, but... Uh, in retrospect, that was a brief co- period. It coalesced around a series of majority opinions with a handful of scattershot dissents. Yep. But the D.C. Circuit was generally speaking with one voice. Yep. There is no argument 
that the DC Circuit is speaking with one voice in either Belul or Nashiri. In Nashiri, it was over a, a powerful dissent from Judge Tatel, right, who's not exactly an extreme, you know, member of the DC Circuit's Democratic block, right? Um, and in Belul, you had multiple fractured on bonk opinions yeah. with all kinds of wackadoodle procedural manipulation, right? <laughs> I mean, one of the things, the, the, the most chutzpah sort of part of the government's briefs in these two cases is in Belul, they go out of their way to say, you know what, justices, this is not that important a case. This is the same government that argued, that petitioned successfully for on bonk rehearing in the DC Circuit twice on the ground that this was a really important question that deserved the full decision. Well, actually, that, that's an interesting point right there, and I, I, I tend to agree with your assessment of it. All right, so that's those are two of the big cases, but but there's more. Speaking of uh, uh, military CMCR. judges in the CMCR, so what is going on in Ortiz and these other cases? Oh gosh! All right, so so we've I've been I've been threatening you guys for for months that I was one day going to bore you with the details of these cases. Buckle up, seriously. Um, all right, so this is actually what what what's odd about these cases, my cases, is that the military commissions turn out to be the provocation, but this isn't really about the military commissions, right? The cases are actually about this 1870 statute um, that's codified today at 10 U.S.C. section 973B. Um, and this, this statute is basically, I mean, I'm going I'm to sort of simplify it a bit. It basically says if you're an active duty military officer, you cannot hold a civil office in the government unless Congress expressly approves it. So give us the uh, the Reconstruction era type of facts that they were trying to guard against. What sure. was going on? So I mean, keep in mind, right? This is the end of the Civil War, right? There are hundreds of thousands, well, hundreds of thousands, right, of Union soldiers looking for work, right? And they're all, you know, in and around D.C. And Congress is very worried about the sort of size of the military exerting undue influence on civilian government. Um, the President of the United States is the former Commanding General of the U.S. Army. Right. Um, there's a suggestion that the Secretary of War should be General Sherman. Right. And so <laughs> Congress is, you know, very nervous about um, in sort of acts of patriotism and in acts of like doing the right thing for the veterans. You're going to basically give the military control over the civilian government. Are you saying there are too many generals in the administration? Now? No. no oh, just... <laughs> <laughs> there might have been then. Might have um, been then. So, so here's the thing. So the statute basically says, listen, the constant, you know, it's not that military officers can't hold civil offices. It's that Congress should have to specifically approve when that, whenever that's going to happen. Um, and so, for example, there are statutes that do expressly authorize military officers to hold senior positions in the government. Um, the NSA director can be a military officer by statute. The CIA director can be a military officer by statute. The director of national intelligence can be a military officer by statute. There are, you know, I think somewhere around 35 or 40 of these specific one-off authorizations. So do you think that the existence in the some of these high-profile offices occupied by officers and people hear that and so they become accustomed to the idea that, well, of course uh, you could have both, not realizing that it's all by specific statutory carve-out. And that the background rule created by this 1870 statute is no, right? That you hmm. can't, that the attorney general cannot in fact be a general. I will, I will confess, I had no idea until you started going on about this. Right. Um, the, so the Secretary of Defense has his own special statute where he not only does he have to be a civilian, but he has to be retired for seven right. years. Right. As we know, with Mattis, that had to be But tweaked. But it's not just the Secretary of Defense. No cabinet position can be held by an active duty military officer under this statute. Right. Um, no federal judge could be an active duty military officer under the statute. No member of Congress. Right. No member of a state legislature. No member of the, you know, city council of your town can be an active duty military officer under this statute. Oh, so it's not just federal office. So um, it's federal point of office, but it's ele or elected to federal or state office. 
fascinating. So like, wait, state? Do they say local county as well? They no, but state. I, I, state. I, hmm. So I, yeah, I mean, I guess we could have a fight about you know if I'm the if I'm the town sheriff, can I also be the common. This is the, this may affect my local voting. I don't know. All this is to say, right? This is one of those weird statues. It's been around forever, and it actually does a ton of work that you never see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So what does that do with the military commissions? Here's where things start. Here's where we start getting sort of closer to what was going on in the Shiri. Um, Congress in 2006, when it creates and stands up the military commissions under the Military Commissions Act, creates an appellate structure. We've talked about this before that puts the Court of Military Commission Review, this new court, in between the trial level military commissions and the DC Circuit. Mm -hmm. So far, so good. Um, the question is, how are you going to staff that court with judges? And Congress says, you know what, we'll just borrow from the parallel courts in the court martial system, the so-called CCAs, the Courts of Criminal Appeals, which are staffed predominantly by military officers who are assigned to those positions by the judge advocate general of their service branch. Right? Okay. Here's the first problem. Um, the CMCR right, is the last stop in the executive branch before things go to the Article III courts. Right? Okay. And so there's actually a pretty good argument that CMCR judges are principal officers under the Supreme Court's Appointments Clause jurisprudence because they are not subject to supervision by other officials within the executive branch, including appellate review. Now, contrast that with, you just mentioned the other, like the, the Court of Appeals uh, for the various branches, yep. the CCAs. Why are they different? And it's ah, okay for them to so be So the officers. Supreme Court in 1997, in a case called Edmund versus United States, unanimously held that CCA judges are inferior officers for three different reasons, right? One, they're subject to the control of the judge advocate general of their service branch, ah. right? Two, their decisions are reviewed by the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, which by statute is located, quote, administratively in the executive branch, unquote. Are they principal officers? Probably. The so okay. the courts never said so. But are, this, are any of them serving officers? No. And by, ah. But by statute, the CAF judges have to be civilians. Uh, okay, got it. Um, right, so we don't, we don't have that so problem. that issue didn't arise. Um, right, so, and then the third reason is just the nature of their jurisdiction, their authority is limited compared to their Article Two, right, the CAF superiors, right? So Edmund actually, in upholding, in concluding why CCA judges are inferior officers, provides all of the grist for the mill mm. for why CMCR judges are different. How many of the CMCR judges are uh, active duty? So of the five current CMCR judges, three are active duty military officers. And there's a fourth who is in the middle of these cases who has since stepped down from both courts, right? So, so here's what happened. Um, the, the, so we started with 2006. In 2009, partly because of this concern and partly to supplement the, the CMCR's roster, Congress tweaks the CMCR by first reconstituting it as an Article I court of record, unlike the CCAs. Right? So now the CMCR is an Article I court, not an administrative tribunal within the executive branch. Two, Congress adds a second way of staffing the CMCR, which is you can also have additional judges who are appointed, not assigned, by the president with the advice and confirmation of the Senate. Right? So, uh, sorry, with the advice and consent of the Senate. Yeah. So you now have two kinds of judges on the CMCR. You've got the military judges who are assigned to the CMCR. You've got the additional judges who are appointed. Okay. All right. Um, fast forward a couple of years. Nashiri, right, in his first mandamus petition of the D.C. Circuit, at least the first one that, that causes real trouble, argues that the CMCR judges are principal officers and that the military judges are therefore serving in violation of the Appointments Clause because they were not – so let me back up a second. The Supreme Court has held that if you're a principal officer, 
you have to be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Of course. Myers versus United States, sure. 1920. Real, real clear. 1926. Okay. Um, Nishiri says CMCR, the military judges on the CMCR oh, because they officers. were appointed. No, they weren't. No, no, no. They, they, they were they're subject to this criticism because they were just assigned, right. not appointed and confirmed. Right. Now, the D.C. Circuit says, you know what? This is a mandamus petition. We don't do that sort of thing. <laughs> but at the end, Judge Henderson writes this paragraph that says, but hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, president and Senate. You might want to fix this. And there's an easy way to fix it. You can just nominate, right, these military officers to the CMCR as additional judges and appoint them in a manner that's consistent with the appointment process. So kind of launder them through the uh, appointments process. Right. Did they do that? They did, right? So all four of the military officers who were at the time serving as CMCR judges were then appointed. But I see where you're going. This solves that problem, but also makes it look a lot like they have a problem under the 1870 statute. Which was amended in 1983. Oh, so it's not just To narrow the scope of civil offices to those that require an election or appointment by the president and confirmation by the Senate. Okay, so what's the... You've made a pretty good case. Yes. What's the best counter argument for why this isn't actually a problem? So, so let me let me just sort of elaborate. Oh, there's more. No, let me just, let me just explain how the litigations progress. Okay. Because and then we'll get yeah, to yeah, the yeah. counter right. So, the argument under the so so hopefully folks have figured it out. So the claim is that when these judges were appointed to the CMCR, right, that triggered the dual office. That triggered this 1870 statute. The remedy, historically, under the 1870 statute, is not disqualification from the new job but termination from the military. Ah, which puts all those, you know, fine officers in a very difficult spot because obviously they didn't sign up for, you know. No question. Listen, this is not about misconduct by the officers. No, of course. Clearly right? not. No, it, this is about just this no one realized it while this was being constructed. Indeed. And they put these officers in a really difficult spot potentially. Quite. Okay. So if the remedy is disqualification, then once those judges were appointed as opposed to assigned to the CMCR, they should no longer have been eligible to sit on the court martial courts of criminal appeals. And so the petitioners in the cases in which I'm counsel of record are 174 service members who had their intermediate appeals heard by judges who had already been appointed to the CMCR and so who were simultaneously serving mm, on both courts. I see. Right? So, so that's can, how we got here. So you can come at this both from the court-martial system. And from the military commission system, yeah, where there's a pending petition for writ of mandamus from two of the 9-11 right. defendants. But if you're right about what the traditional remedy is, it's really not, it, the problem's not for the, the military commission defendants, it's the court-martial defendants. Professor Chesney, you don't miss much, right? Well, I miss a lot, but. No, but this is, so this is, so part of our argument for why our cases are the right vehicle is because not only, if we're right, not only does that mean that it's the court-martial guys who have the real injury, but it would actually settle the potential objection in the military commissions by saying, no, 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 you guys are totally fine serving in the military commission as civilians, Yeah. right? Um, and therefore, there's no impropriety with you hearing the appeal in the 9-11 case. If, is it possible, just spitballing here, could they say, okay, this is all correct, they can't do both, but we're not going to apply that retroactively? Um, they could. Right now, there's something called the de facto officer doctrine, right, which provides that in certain contexts, um, you can, you know, you will not be entitled to relief because the officer thought he was acting with de facto authority. There you go. There's a Supreme Court case from 1995 called Ryder versus United States, which is remarkably not similar but analogous to these facts, where the Supreme Court rejected the notion that a 
wrongly appointed military judge could have his decision salvaged by the de facto officer. Well, there doctrine. is something odd about kind of treating as sort of a harmless error. Because well, judges uh, are different, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. All right. So you asked what were the counter arguments, and I've been very one-sided in my presentation so far. <laughs> I know you've completely persuaded me, but I'm sure there's a good counter. So the government, the government has made two different sets of arguments. Um, the first is that the dual office holding ban isn't even implicated, right? Because CMCR judges don't hold a civil office, um, and because even if they do. Congress has basically authorized them to hold it. Um, and what they point to is in the assigned judges section of the MCA, it does say they can be military officers. So right? the idea is like, look, insofar as there's a problem, the most recent legislative action is that, and that controls and says it's okay. Right. Now, our response is, yes, the assigned judges provision explicitly says military officers can be assigned. That only proves that the appointed judges' provisions, omission of similar language, is intentional. Interesting. Right? Um, so that's one argument. On the civil office, right, the government argues that the CMCR doesn't, isn't really a civil office, it's a military court, right? And it's, doing, it's exercising a traditional military function. Um, two responses there. One, there's no such thing in traditional military law as an intermediate appellate court, right? That's a modern innovation. But leaving that aside, yeah, yeah, that I know, that's not a yeah, good for me. Um, Congress created the CMCR as an Article I court of record. Right, um, not an Article not Two an Article agency. Two. Right, right, not in a, not a military court. It's it's not like the courts martial or the military commissions, which are part of the military. Right, and I, I think I think I agree with that. That there is no Article One military court in the sense that they're talking about here. Right, and so I mean, if Article One, um, you know, courts are are not civil offices. I don't know what is, but even better, DOJ in a series of OLC memos like dating all the way back to attorney general opinions from 1884, hmm. has always interpreted civil office capaciously. Well, we know how the Cleveland administration was on these issues. Hey, Attorney General Williams wrote this whole memo about why General Sherman couldn't be acting Secretary of War under this statute. Oh, that's fascinating. And so, right, if, if acting Secretary of War is a civil office, right, why isn't Article One judge? In the so, so was Grant poised to appoint his friend and former... Uh, you know, former deputy or lieutenant, whatever you want to call it, um, and then backed off after getting advice that this would present a That's statutory a very, violation yes. problem? Yeah. This statute. Yeah. By the way, a plug for Ron Chernow has a new biography Indeed. coming out of Grant. Indeed. I cannot wait Me to neither. read that. So, all right, so and also for the musical that Lynn Manuel Miranda is surely then going to do. <laughs> Ulysses Sam Grant. Okay. Oh, so, I'm so um, happy I got you to sing on the podcast. <laughs> but the best, by the way, the best Hamilton joke on that regard is William Henry Harrison. <laughs> um, is is that the best? Oh my God, you got to go watch it. It's hilarious. <laughs> all right, I'll check that out. All right. Anyway, so to make a long story short, that, I don't think that's the government's best argument, right? That that the dual office holding ban wasn't even triggered. Their better argument is there's a provision Congress added in 1983 that basically says that there will not be a uh, that that no officer will be punished, right, for anything they do in violation of the statute in the furtherance of quote assigned official duties. And so the government and the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces in the Ortiz case read this provision as basically a you know. No enforcement provision. I would have thought it meant more like no literally punishment, but that doesn't mean it's okay, therefore, to have both positions. So there's that. But the other problem is, note the language, in furtherance of assigned official duties. As opposed to appointed. Exactly. I told you you don't miss much. Well, <laughs> you know, this is this has all the hallmarks of a final exam question in your military courts and jurisdiction course. If which, only I was giving an exam. But, oh, <laughs> but, <laughs> you doing papers? Yeah. Oh. But, so, but so here's <laughs> the thing about the 1983 statute, right? The provocation for that was there was a, a practice, a longstanding practice of JAG lawyers, right, military lawyers being assigned to work as special assistant U.S. attorneys to prosecute civilian offenses on military bases, 
Um, and OLC concludes in 1983 that that's a violation of this same statute, right? Oh, wow. So the 1983 amendments were designed to basically remedy that violation. And so this provision was there to say, listen, you cannot punish any of the JAG lawyers who were just doing their job, who were assigned to go prosecute these cases. One, and then in the same statute, Congress says, going forward, it's not a violation of the statute if you're assigned to a civil office. You have to be appointed to one. Got it. All right. Well, I think uh, this sounds like one they might take. I, you know, I am so biased. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know why I'm even asking you. I, 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 it seems to me a compelling case for cert. It is a statute the Supreme Court has never interpreted. On the government's and the Court of Appeals reading of this last provision we were discussing, the statute would basically have no purpose because there'd be no consequence for President Trump, you know, putting one of his favorite generals in the cabinet. Well, like I say, I think that this is really important in terms of the many court martial system defendants. That that perspective on this seems like that's the strongest case for and, cert. And our hope is, you know, we can convince the court that, and you can clean up a mess in the military commissions all in one fell swoop. So um, it's been scheduled for the long conference on September 25th. So what that means in real terms is we'll have good, we could have good news as early as September 28th. We could have bad news as early as October 2nd, and after that, it's anybody's guess. All right, so there is, this could turn out to be the term of military commissions and military justice like we've never seen. I, you know, it could be. I mean, so Nashiri is all over these cases because it was the Nashiri decision in the D.C. Circuit that started the ball rolling. Yeah. Um, but they're not actually related. No, no, that's right. These are all really three distinct ones. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, now, Bobby, we've been torturing our listeners for, for minutes on end. Should we save North Korea for next week? Yeah, I think we should because there's, there's nothing particularly pressing. What we and were going to do, anywhere. just something to look forward to for the next uh, the next segment. That'll be episode 37. Whoa. No. Yes. yes. Casey yes. Stengel. <laughs> okay. Episode 37. We will talk about uh, the action last night where the Security Council has a new resolution. And we'll give a little primer on UN Security Council resolution solutions in general and as applied to North Korea. Uh, and we'll talk at the same time about uh, the parallel question of U.S.-specific sanctions authority under both IEPA, which I love to say, IEPA. and Steve, I love when you say that, and the North Korea Sanctions and Policy totally. Enhancement Act. Um, I think let's spare our listeners by jumping right into the trivia. So, by the way, but, but I just want to say one thing about oh, yeah. number 37. Oh, yeah. right? What is that? So I mentioned Casey Stengel, right? Uh-huh. You know, beloved, terrible beloved Mets, Mets manager, yeah. great Yankees manager. Um, so the, the Mets franchise history got off to a, an auspicious start when in the 1961 expansion draft, they passed on what everyone agreed was the best player in the draft, Rusty Staub, and instead picked like this totally irrelevant catcher um, whose name I'm embarrassed to say at this moment, I'm actually totally forgetting. Um, and someone asked uh, uh, Casey Stengel, why did you start with a catcher? Hobie Landreth. Hobie Landreth. And, and Casey Stengel was asked, why did you start with a catcher? And Casey Stengel says, well, without a catcher, you'll have a lot of pass balls. <laughs> that tells you all the... That's the Mets. That's the Mets in, in a nutshell. What right, a year trivia. We... So, so right. if, you're, if, you, if you don't want to hear us talk about the NFL... Now, or Guns N' Roses... Oh, or that. <laughs> or both. Drop off now and thanks for listening. Uh, let me give a quick review of the Guns <laughs> N' Roses concert because this was, for someone of my vintage, this was pretty wonderful. I'd never seen them live. And I was very dubious that they could still bring it. Uh, I was particularly afraid that Axl Rose really couldn't sing, given the way he sang, um, that he couldn't still do it. I, and I must say, when he first came out on stage, taking a good look at him, I thought, oh, this is not going to go well. And for the first several songs, you, you could really hardly hear him. Duff McKagan, was the bass player, was clearly carrying the vocals. Duff is the man. Duff, Duff is the man. And by the way, I think he's got a, uh, an autobiography. I'm now dying to read it after watching him. So he was 
Eagles looking hale and hearty and, and carrying the vocals to some extent. But as the night went on, uh, Axel kind of warmed up and got into it more. And by the end, he was really cutting loose in, in the way you kind of expect him to sound. I think he just takes a little time to warm up. They played, Steeford, uh, over three hours uninterrupted. It was unbelievable. Slash hasn't lost a step at all. If anything, he's, he's better than ever. I, lost, I didn't catch the name of the guy who replaced Izzy Stradlin as a rhythm guitarist, uh, but the guy was good, and they let him do some solos. Um, what I want to highlight, though, is that they did a lot of cool stuff by way of uh, covers and homages. So among other things, at one point, much to my surprise, uh, in, in honor of Glenn Campbell, they got quiet and they played Wichita Lineman. Nice. And that was really cool, and it, it sounded neat. Um, they did a wonderful homage to uh, uh, Chris Cornell, and they did Black Hole Sun, and they—I mean—they nailed it. It was—it was incredible. That probably was the best of what they covered. Did they play any of the classics? Uh, they played all the classics, and they—you know. Merciful. By the way, we just referred to Guns N' Roses songs as classics. Yeah, well, you know, Appetite for Destruction was 1987. Oh my God! I know. So they and and use your illusion. Uh, there was a little bit of that. You know, I kind of get off the bus after GNR lies, but there were there were pa- some songs. Patience. That, uh, you know, you know they didn't play patience. Play, it may patience have been the one because well, the whistling. Yeah, that might, they might be beyond their. <laughs> That's their a little facilities. tough. Uh, one thing that was really neat, they were doing this uh, extended instrumental that I think began with a cover of "Wish You Were Here" by Pink Floyd, and then uh, you know Slash is doing all this fun stuff, and he starts building in little homages to different solos from different songs. So at one point, he played an excerpt from the solo from "Bullet the Blue Sky" by U2, which was really cool. I don't know how many people caught that, but it really spoke to me. Then they went into the Godfather theme. You know, da, na, 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 na. So they're doing that, and that resolved into Sweet Child of Mine. <laughs> I know this sounds That's crazy, amazing. but it was pretty cool. So, so I've always maintained that if I were ever a major league relief pitcher, you know. Oh, yeah, your, your music to come my out to? My walk-in music would be Welcome to the Jungle. Oh, yeah, that'd be hard to beat. Well, they had a whole bunch of candidate songs for this. Yeah, um, but, but there's, there's something about Welcome to the Jungle that's always like, you know, just the, the crescendo. You would have liked the, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to try to play it here because I have a piece of it on the phone, but I won't. But they had a long extended intro, but you could tell what it was going to be. And they just dragged it out and got <laughs> the crowd real wound up. That song never gets old. Nope. Um, although, I, let me just report that one of, today. I, when I told my kids what I was doing, and they're like, who's Guns N' Roses? <laughs> I said, y- do you know the song Welcome to the Jungle? And one of my kids says, oh, yeah, it's from the Jumanji movie, the remake. <laughs> How great is that? I said, say, is it from Lion King? Uh, well, you know, it's close. All right. Um, pro football. Oy. Sorry about your Giants, Oy. dude. Oy. <laughs> can't can, say. can any one of my teams do something surprisingly positive? You know, if you just switch your allegiance to the Cowboys, you wouldn't have this problem. That's not even funny. Yeah, I know. Well, I can that's see like, that that's that's like, not that's the like, thing to that's, say. That's like saying, hey, if you just you know root for the Yankees. It's like, after 9-11, right, all these people are like, hey, Mets fans, you should root for the Yankees. It's the patriotic thing to do. They're like, like, we're New York, too. I'm a New Yorker. Like, the least New Yorker thing I could do is switch allegiances in a moment of national crisis. I agree with that. Having lived five years in New York, you have your teams, and if you're, especially if you grew up there, you stick to your teams. You don't go Jets to Giants. No. I mean, this is, so I I was like, this is, you don't understand New York if you think that a national tragedy like 9-11 is a reason to switch your sports allegiances. Well, I got to tell you, I thought that, uh, 
if, early on, I thought the Giants' line, defensive line, looked so good. They just got um, tired. Well, and, and, the, and the Cowboys, notwithstanding their, their losses and, and changes on defense, the yeah. defense was actually quite good, although I think that was more the Giants' offense not being so good. No run game, no Odell. No. But meanwhile, the, the Cowboys' offense, you know, once they got Ezekiel Elliott in there, no, boy, listen, I he's, mean, he's the real deal. If, 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 if Elliott plays most of the season, and, you know, color me as not understanding why arbitration laws don't apply to the NFL— um, but but if, if Elliott plays most of the season, I really think the Cowboys are unfortunately the team to beat in the NFC. Yeah. Of course, you know, given their history, it doesn't mean anything. No, that's right. They, the playoffs are a different deal. And but yeah, I mean, the Cowboys look fantastic. I, I think what's going to happen is the Giants are actually going to look really much better next week against a, a less good team like Detroit. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. I think it's hard. To, it's hard to know. Was it a week? New York Giants or a strong Dallas right. Cowboys. Was, was it a weak Baylor or a strong UT San Antonio? <laughs> exactly. Way to go, Roadrunners, taking out Baylor. At home? Uh, karma continues to. Oh, uh, no, actually, yeah, was that in, it was at McLean Stadium. It was yeah. in Waco. Well, that's that's losing to UTSA is, is not nearly as much of a blow to the program as losing to Liberty was. True, but they're not. I mean, you know, if you had, if you, if you looked at Baylor's schedule and said 0 oh, and 2. Oh, yeah. No, and look, they're going out to Duke this week. I know. And Baylor should get a beating there. And, and you know, I got to say, I got. <laughs> I love my friends who went to Baylor, but the, but the athletic program there deserves what it's getting, in my opinion. Another a, a conversation for another time. All right. Yeah. So who are your NFL? Let's do division winners, playoff picks. Oh gosh, I'm not prepared for this. You tell me yours, and, I'll, right. and I'll tell you what's wrong with your I picks. Think, excellent. So I think <laughs> Dallas will win the East. You're correct. Sir. Giants might. You know, if the Giants pull together, maybe they have a shot at the wild card. I think the Eagles going. Yeah. It could both, right? Mm-hmm. Um, NFC South. You know, I was really surprised that the Falcons basically were two drop passes away from losing to the Bears. You know, maybe this is a sort of I think come this back is, down to earth. Yeah, them. I think this is a Tampa Bay's year. I think I think the Bucks are going to be really, really good. Well, that's interesting. I wonder if they will get any sort of uh, emotional boost from the yep. the havoc that Irma yep. has wreaked on yep. Florida. And by the way, any Florida listeners out there in Georgia, South Carolina, et cetera, you know, we're we're thinking about y'all. Certainly Indeed. feeling your pain. Um, NC North, I think, is is the Packers to lose. You know the the, the Lions are going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, listen, there could be a wild card team, but yeah. I just, I, you know, it's going to yeah, be. Yeah, I'll, I'll call the Lions for a wild card. That's fair. What about um, out west? So you know, I, I mean, hard to know what to make of the Seahawks given the the game in Green Bay. Um, hard to know what to make of the Rams, right? Are the Rams? Yeah, what actually, was that? Are the Rams good or are the Colts just terrible? Oh, I think the Colts are terrible. I think that's the Rams are are going to be better than they were because how can yeah, they not be? Right, right. I think the Colts are in trouble. But I, I think the Cardinals are in trouble too, right? So I actually think that like the West is going to come down to Seattle versus dare I say the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah, I, I'd be surprised if they can hold it together. Me but too. We'll see. But you know, hey, there's always one you know one upstart team. Unfortunately, the Rams may not be the best team playing in LA, and I do not mean the Chargers. I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> I might. I mean, the USC Trojans, who UT has to go out and play this weekend. Here's hoping they're looking past us and we can spring a little surprise. They're not looking past us. This is going to be a beatdown. Well, the problem is there's revenge to be had, Quite. right? Just as Quite. we had revenge on them in the Rose Bowl. Yes. National champions. Um, I'm afraid they may oh, no, be looking is, for us on this. Ugly. No, right. one, at least one of their players gave gave a horns down in the end zone last week. Like they're they're definitely thinking about trying the, to the Baker Mayfield approach. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Though when I first saw Baker Mayfield uh, plant the, the OU flag in the middle of Ohio State's, oh, I thought, man, that's a that's kind of a, a tacky, you know, sort of unsportsmanlike move. But I didn't realize Ohio State had had stayed on the middle of their yeah, field yeah, yeah, yeah. before was, and was, sung was, their alma mater. It was vengeance. Yeah, absolutely. And so to that, I say, you know, good job, OU. And, and listen, I may lose my tenure as a UT professor for saying this. Careful with the compliments to OU. I know, but like. You know, as a Michigan fan, thanks oh, yeah. to you. No, no, that's cool. Look, I, I think Big 12 needed it. So pivoting back to the AFC, right? Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, those first place Buffalo Bills, I don't think, I don't <laughs> think, hold I don't think they're going to win the AFC East. I think the Patriots, you know, figure out why they're the Patriots. Um, AFC South, you know, that's a wacky division this year. Certainly not the Colts, right? Yeah. Um, the, you know, the Titans were the, were, the, were the popular pick early on. But, you know, the Jaguars look like a real football team on Sunday. What about the Texans? The Jaguars look like a real football team on Sunday. <laughs> uh, so I think the what Texans have some quarterback problems. They have some, but you know what? I, I have a lot of faith in Deshaun Watson. I think that uh, it, by the end of the year, as long as he stays healthy, we're going to start seeing him kind of come into his own. I think the question is how many games do they lose before then? Right, and and how much can the defense hold him in place? Yep. Um, AFC North. I was not impressed with Pittsburgh. You know, I mean, yeah, they beat the Browns, but the Browns, like the Bears, had a couple chances to win that game. Yeah, no, AFC. <laughs> That division is is always a little hard. Black to and blue. Everyone's eight and eight, nine and seven. Yeah, I mean, you know, it'll, it'll probably. I mean, certainly not the Bengals, right? I yeah. think, um, but I think it's going to come down to you know, like every year, Pittsburgh or Baltimore. Okay, and out west. Um, and out west, AFC West. I mean, Raiders. The Raiders in Denver, right? I mean, you know, the Raiders, I think, are going to be very, very good. I think Denver's going to be, you know, depending upon how things hold up at the quarterback position, I think they're going to be pretty good. I think we get two teams out of the AFC West at least. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. For um, some, there's something about the AFC West games. Maybe it's because, so growing up in Texas, you have your morning games, right. and, and they're going to be the Cowboys. Morning watch, games, that's so weird. Well, like 1130 know, or something. I know, it's still yeah. weird. Uh, so you have the, the early game, right? Yeah. And uh, it's always the Cowboys, unless they're on the road somewhere uh, far out west. But then the afternoon game, the West Coast games, there's something about that scene. Chiefs and Chargers and Raiders and Broncos. Like, every one of oh those my. teams were interesting to watch. There's yep. something about yep. them. Yeah. So, so where does that leave you? So, a Super Bowl pick. Um, oh, well, of course, it's the Cowboys uh, for the NFC. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. And uh, well, uh, who, I, it's so tempting to say the Patriots. And there is sort of an element of, well, like, look, you know, give me a good reason to bet against the Patriots. Um, so, about, actually. Did you watch the game Thursday night? No, I know, but you, you just. It's like the Spurs. You have to watch the season unfold and just the system kick in. So um, I'm going to go real conventional on the AFC side and say Patriots. Um, so I'm going to go on a crazy old limb and predict a rematch of Super Bowl 37. Yep. <laughs> You'll have to give me a clue. Now, um, give me the quarterbacks. Oh, who are the back quarterbacks? Then. I have no idea who are the, who are the quarterbacks. All right, oh, then we're okay. mutually stumped. Dee, 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 dee. The quarter. Well, so... Um, well, no, that wasn't the quarterback. I have no idea who the quarterbacks were. Um, Super Bowl 37 um, was known as the Gruden Bowl, right? Um, and it was the Raiders and the Bucks. And the Bucks. Oh, interesting. I actually think that that is not, it, it's a little bit off the wall kind of pick, but it's not yeah. crazy. Well, that's it. I mean, it makes me want to say, arg. It's a very piratey, very piratey. <laughs> National top matchup. like a pirate Super Bowl day. Absolutely. Have that in New Orleans. Super Bowl. Super Bowl. I think the Super Bowl is in the brand new um, uh, Viking Stadium this year. Oh, is it? I think oh, that might oh, be right. That'll be nice. Anyway, uh, so, you know, let's we'll check the tape come January and see just how crazy, stupid, wrong we were. <laughs> exactly. Um, but meanwhile, we're going to be right back at you guys in two days with our interview with Glenn Gerstel. We'll talk to you soon. So thanks for listening, everybody. Stay safe out there. Follow Bobby on Twitter at Bobby Chesney, Steve at Steve underscore Vladek, NSL Podcast at NSL Podcast. Leave reviews on iTunes, preferably good ones. And tell your friends. We need to get the listener listenership growing again. Yeah. Right? We're kind of hovering at 6,000 for several weeks now. Let's get, this, let's get this to seven. I need to buy Maddie a new pair of shoes. Yeah, with all the money that we get from this entirely Boats. non-revenue enterprise. On that note, everybody stay safe out there. Adios.